Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Professor Melissa Stain, who holds the Department of Science and Technology's National Research Foundation National Research Chair in Critical Diversity Studies and is also the founding director of the WITS Center for Diversity Studies. Welcome to the show. Thank you so very much. It's lovely to be here. Prof. Stain, this is a fascinating field. You've spearheaded the development of diversity studies as an academic discipline in South Africa. It's involved the establishment of the Intercultural and Diversity Studies of Southern Africa at UCT and the WIT Center of Diversity Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand. You're also the founding editor-in-chief of the International Journal in Critical Diversity Studies. Clearly, you have a, a pioneering spirit and passion for your field. In layman's terms, please tell us what diversity studies entails. Right. So, you know, we have normal human variation, which is infinite, but some differences get marked within unequal power relations in such a way that they end up actually making a difference to people's lives. If we, the obvious one to think of um, would be like race, where we've just got an, an infinite gradations of human pigmentation. But these have been seized upon to create this notion that you have black people and white people. And obviously, we can see that this is about power. It's about um, establishing um, a group of people that are seen as being superior and others that are seen as being inferior. And it is about hoarding power towards those people who regard it as white and sapping power away from those people who regard it as black. So what we look at then is how does difference get um, weaponized and constructed in such a way that it actually ends up creating axes along which oppression and, and domination operate. Does that work for you? It does. And it also has me thinking about the the gender dynamic here. And yes. we recently yes. had a, a show with um, Dr. Karen Therese Howell, who is a mathematician, and I asked her about some women in history who'd made contributions to, to the discipline. And oh. from what she said, first of all, one wasn't allowed to enroll as a student because she was a woman. Right. So she enrolled under um, a man's name. Right. Another wasn't allowed to be a researcher. So again, yes. she published under a man's name. So it's this yes. power dynamic yes. and, and gender. How does that factor into diversity studies? Well, exactly, exactly as you're saying. Um, and exactly as, as I explained with race, because gender in and of itself doesn't make, well, we put six differences in and of themselves, don't make um, some people more entitled than others. That's about power dynamics within social relations. Um, and that is about, obviously, in this case, the construction of patriarchy, which um, favors men and disadvantages women and creates all these inequalities, including the notions of like who is capable of what, who should be what, 
and feeding into those dynamics that you talk about. One of, one of my favorite stories is about the first Afrikaans woman in South Africa to write an operetta. She would be, lie in bed at night, and when she realized that her husband's breathing had become steady and he was asleep, then she would carefully get out of bed, crawl down, the, you know, the well, creep down the stairs, shall I say, and then sit in front of the piano and do like Beethoven did, you know, imagine the notes, imagine the music and write it down. But eventually she'd just have to hear some, some harmony or something, you know, and she'd quietly press down the notes. And the moment the piano sounded, he'd say, Henrietta, come back to, he'd call her from, from upstairs. So, I mean, those are the kinds of odds that women have had to deal with, you know, and it's all this, you know, these gender constructions, um, which, I mean, we could talk about all of this in more detail, but, but the way sex differences have been used to construct gender differences, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, through these unequal power relations. You know? So what is appropriate for a woman and what should she not be doing? She should not be doing high-powered intellectual work or, or a creative work, self-fulfillment, self self-expression, she's there to do the, the service and the support, you know. I mean, obviously, things are shifting because, because we're working at it, you know. Um, but, but those assumptions are still rattling around at quite a profound level in our societies. True, and I think it is almost uh, habitual. It is ingrained in social habits from generation to, to generation. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. And, and you know, with, the, with gender constructions, I mean, this is really ancient. You know, I have no, no actual um, proof to say this, but in my own opinion, it, it is the oldest of all of these. Um, these systemic, widespread, you know, um, fault lines that just run really, really deep. I think it, it's it's fundamental, the construction of gender um, to, to construct society, you know, and, and, and like the foundational relationship is that between men and women as constructed by men, for men, <laughs> um, and and when you when you interfere with that fundamental relationship, when you start working to change it, it is profoundly, profoundly subversive of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I mean, you look at what's happening in the United States around abortion, around um, you know gender, um, sexual reproductive rights, and things like that. You know, and and trans trans rights. <clears throat> That all goes back to the control of, of gender, of, of, of women's sexuality, ultimately. So. What triggered your interest in the field? How did you get into diversity studies? Well, um, there, there are obviously many answers I could give, um, but, but diversity studies specifically as, it, as, as it's come to be formulated, um, was really through the political transition. I mean, I'd always been sort of politically quite aware and it had been, um, and, and had been sort of involved in, in, 
you know some of the some of the social activism that was happening in the in the late eighties, and it was about wanting to forge through to to how do we construct a society that is actually in many ways the other of the old apartheid society, you know, because in in the apartheid society, difference had been used in all these very obnoxious ways that we've been talking about. You know, and and how do we start to build a society on different assumptions around difference? One in which people are respected, people are valued, people are safe, people are included. And what what does that look like? And so, so the diversity studies really grew out of that desire. It was you know it was circuitous, but that's really fundamentally where it came from. And that's a mind shift from both the oppressor and and yes. the oppressed. Yeah, absolutely. Which is part of the difficulty, you know, because um, because with any of these power dynamics, usually the people who are on the oppressed side have a better insight into how these social dynamics operate. So, you know, you go, I mean, I've heard people in, in uh, corporates, for example, have said to me, oh, there's no gender problems. There's no more gender discrimination in our organization. We dealt with that long ago. And then you talk to the woman and they say, oh, my God, are we up against it? And so you do get that difference in insight, that sort of inverted epistemology, as somebody has said. So trying to get both the oppressed people and the oppressors in on wanting to change these dynamics is a really big challenge. Because obviously with all of these, whether it's patriarchy, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's heteropatriarchy, whether it's ableism, you know, there's an investment by the people who are on the dominating side, on the on the beneficiary side, in the perpetuation of the system. So that's tough. I can see from what you've said, the, the ways that critical diversity studies can help with understanding the dismantling of these types of systems of oppression and discrimination. But moving on from understanding, how can they contribute to to formulating a a new mind map, a a new kind of world order where we have this equality and especially from a gender point of view? What what are your thoughts? Well, two answers. Let me first say that you talk about a new world order. And, you know, for me, the question of critical diversity is right at the heart of this, this um, polycrisis that we keep hearing about, which is very, very serious. I don't, when I say keep hearing about it, I don't mean it's trivial. Um, but, you know, the climate change, the, the inequality, the AI that's developing. I mean, there are, are all of these things that are challenging us in ways we've never been challenged before. But it's very interesting to me that none of those actually put the challenges to our being human that are absolutely integral to this polycrisis. We can't do being human the same way we did and expect to survive any more than we can expect to survive if we don't have clean water or clean air. And so I think that, you know, the, the work that as you should be talking about sort of creating a new world order, it's seriously, seriously important that we also place the question of how do we think about difference and how do we, how do we respond and how do we organize with difference in ways that are not primitive, like 
turning difference into a mechanism for oppression and subordination, because we, we can see that that is coming apart. That's part of the crisis that we're facing, is that the old modern colonial world order, where difference was used, where social orders of advantage and disadvantage, that order is, is coming apart. But we cannot live in an interconnected, heterogeneous, highly nuanced um, world of difference and still hold those kinds of, of, of attitudes and ways of managing and organizing with our differences. We just, we just, we've got to do better. So I think I've sort of missed part of your question along the way. I think your you answer asked, was far more interesting. But. Okay, but you did ask about a framework. So, yes, I would like to tell you that um, about this framework that I did have been developing over the years that I've called Critical Diversity Literacy. Literacy. Literacy, yes, because just like with any literacy, you know, you're not born with it. You have to you have to apply yourself to develop it and you've got to practice it, just like with any literacy. And um, it tries to articulate just in, in line with what we've been talking about, sort of like the basic learnings that we we all need to take on board if we are to get better in terms of living in a world of difference. So I think that that's, that's, um, that's been quite a, a valuable exercise on my part. And it really started because I was teaching all these students and everybody asks like you did, what's, what's critical diversity studies and what are you learning? You know? And so it was an attempt to try and formulate what, it, what would you have as a capacitated subjectivity in um, diversity issues, someone someone who's working well with it. What what qualities, what what attitudes, what what learnings would they be bringing to a situation? So that's the the attempt to help towards a, a, a framework. Could you give us a couple of examples of of what it means in practice and? I, I ask this because, for instance, there is, uh, I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned was our whole interconnected world. And I mean, think about it, we've oh. got multiple generations interacting, multiple cultures, we, we're all yes. interconnected. Okay. Um, and, the, you know, if we think in the business world, a lot of the language is about ecosystems as a, as a, as a buzzword um, and thinking about different mindsets or, or philosophies for organizations. Listening to what you're saying, this is this is uncharted territory in a way. So yeah. I wondered if you could share some examples that are, are perhaps evolving, D- difference in a positive way. Okay, so well, let me let me just take one for example with religion, um, because obviously that's very um, much at the top of our minds at the moment. But if, if you think of it, a, a, a fundamentalist mindset, and you can be fundamentalist about anything, not only religion, the fundamentalist mindset would say that it's, it's a way of believing that my beliefs are the right and only right beliefs. Whereas with a critical diversity awareness, you would realize that, you know, there's only one kind of belief that is not sustainable, not 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 possible to hold in this kind of diverse world that we're living in and increasingly moving into, um, and that is the fundamentalist mindset. 
to religion. That's the, that's the only way of believing that we can't go on believing. I think that is a, a very topical example. Oh. Yes, yes. Moving into areas of your work specifically, as I, I mentioned in, in the introduction, you hold the South African National Research Chair in Critical Diversity Studies. And uh, according to the, their website, they stated that the national strategic planning has recognized that in order to create wealth for South Africa in the context of globalization, human resource development has to be prioritized, especially in the context of the shift towards knowledge economies. Obviously, listening to our earlier part of the conversation and the fact that one of government's concerns is that historically marginalized or oppressed populations continue to be underdeveloped and therefore excluded from areas of economic activity. Can you tell us how the Saatchi chair that you spearhead aims to address some of the social dynamics in South Africa? Um, Well, let me say it is a research chair. You know, so so the 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 focus has been on research. We have done um, work in, you know, gosh, I want to say like every sector, because it's obviously not not exactly true, but across so many different sectors, through our students, um, students are looking at power dynamics that are unfolding within particular locations. So the 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 work involves where normative ways of thinking about difference, the ones that biologize, that naturalize differences in such ways that power dynamics seem to be obvious and natural and the only way things can be. Um, those the way, those um, ways of thinking about difference tend to obscure the power relations that create those and that hold those ways of thinking in place. What our work does as critical diversity is to, to open that up and make that visible. So we, we've, we've done a lot of work in a lot of different sectors, a lot related to, to the workplace, where we're showing how the dynamics operate in those particular contexts. And then what, we, what the chair also does is, uh, I say we look at how power is at work, and then we, we, we sort of look at, um, you know, what, what materials, what, what ways of intervening do we need to undertake in order to interrupt those power relations? So, so there is that element, too, um, where we, tr- we, we, we tr- do our best to contribute to understanding which ways are effective and which ways are not for bringing about change. But an important part is opening up the conversations. It really is because people make this false dichotomy between doing and talking. And they sort of say, why are we talking again? You know, but talking is one of the most important things we do. Um, because discourse is incredibly powerful. Discourse shapes the way we think about things, the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand ourselves in relation to others. And, and, um, you know, um, Entering into conversations that, that help us to develop new insights, new ways of thinking is crucially important in our work. When we were speaking offline, I, I mentioned um, remote work and potentially the benefits towards women. Realistically, the working world was constructed by men for men. Yes. Yes. And 
when I've been reflecting on COVID, yes, of course, it caused massive disruption, but it was a, a, a point in time that impacted across the entire world, which gave an opportunity to reset and help people rethink about the workplace. And oh. I know that women are, tend to uh, take bear the brunt of um, accommodating care work. Um, and now there is this move from people who were working remote. And again, it's, it's kind of coming through from the male CEOs that they want people back in the office. So bums in seat, bums in mm. seats and mm. remote work ha- for some positions has proven to be effective. And I wondered on your, your views on this kind of opportunity of being able to break some of those, those power relations in the workplace where Women yes. can actually be accommodated through remote work. Yes. yes. Well, it is exactly as you say. I mean, it presents a great opportunity. Also, for us to make the care work visible, you know, because as you say, I mean, this is a huge blind spot in the world of work. And even when women come into the workplace, they're still, still expected to do more of the care work, <laughs> you know. Like I know in academia, for example, you know, just holding the students' hands more, being on committees more, just doing more of the emotional labor that holds the institutions together, yeah, being wives to the institution. And this is, this is something that we, we often do take on. So I think you, you raise an important point, and I'm not sure that that has been picked up sufficiently, that um, the, the whole COVID um, crisis has shown us that it is possible for the flexibility to enter into the workplace that many women need because they have the primary burden of the care work. So I think you've, you're onto something important that needs to be raised more often. So we've just created a new research stream. Didn't we just? Yes. <laughs> we absolutely did. One other thing that I wanted to ask you whilst we're, we're on this topic and the work that you do in the center is that a lot of change happens through policy. So if a piece of legislation has been passed, then we say, yes, we're going to follow the rules and we're going to implement X, Y, and Z. Um, How can critical diversity studies inform policymaking and activism aimed at promoting gender equality and, and social justice? Well, we do. We've worked on um, reports that have had to do with things like gender-based violence and women's leadership in Africa, things like that. You know, it's a difficult sort of relationship between policy and laws and the lived reality that people experience, you know, because we all know, I mean, people often say you can't legislate a change in attitudes or a change in heart, you know. So um, we need both, you know. Um, very often, again, people tend to feel that, that the, the policies and laws somehow will, f- will fix things like they're more important. They are because they create baselines for behavior. And we need that. We need to be able to say, if you, if you go beyond this line, you're actually out of court and the norms in our country or in our countries have shifted. We don't accept that behavior. That's really important that we have to be able to do that. But at the same time, we have to keep doing the work that has to do with how those policies are still implemented by people, 
decisions are still made by committees. And all of that, there's a lot of conscious and unconscious stuff that is, you know, brought into those moments of decision-making. And so, so we have to keep working with the people themselves too, as well as the policies, as well as the laws, so that you, you've got people who are conscious of the kinds of dynamics that we're talking about, who are making the decisions along with progressive policies and laws. That's what we need. The world is in a continuous state of flux. Earlier you spoke about, I think you mentioned the word polycrisis. And the work that you do is something which is actually perpetual because there is always change. There's always new things coming in and we, we have to adapt. And I think that's often quite hard for people to do. It really is, you know, and um, I think it's true, obviously, uh, that everything is in in change. And in the human world, I always say there is no black and white. It's all shades of grey. These shades are constantly morphing. But at the same time, obviously, we live through periods where things escalate or suddenly accumulate. And then we have, you know, huge changes on different fronts at the same time. And we're living through one of those periods. There are just so many challenges that we face and that that challenge us as human beings. But certainly the kind of work that we're doing, and and a lot of this has to do with, you know, um, in terms of personal orientation, allowing oneself to be less defensive, a little bit more vulnerable, a little less certain, a little bit more open to hearing the positions of others, you know, so, so a lot of these are orientations, shall I say, that people always need and that we will be needing even if the polycrisis resolves itself in the best possible ways, there's still going to be change. And, you know, this is another point, which is, you know, sometimes students say to me, well, we're, we're talking about all of these things and fixing, as it were, gender inequalities and patriarchy and race and white supremacy and stuff like this. But there'll just be something else later on. And the implication is like we might as well throw our arms up in the air because it's like hopeless. Well, I mean, it's true in that society is always contested and it will always be contested. People have different interests. People position themselves differently. So we will always have this kind of flux and the tendency for centers and margins to develop. But what I always say to them is, well, don't worry about those because that will be for future generations to deal with. We've got to deal with the ones that are here now, just as when the transatlantic slave trade was in its prime, it was the task of those people who were work to refuse for that to be a, an insult. But the work people of that era took it on and managed to get it abolished. Um, and in the same way, we've got to apply, apply ourselves. This is our historical uh, mandate, is to take on those ways in which differences are being mobilized now to create unfair societies. Future generations will have to deal with their things. I think that's a, a great answer and so, so true. Yeah. You're listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Melissa Stain, who holds the Department of Science and Technology National Research Foundation's Research Chair in Critical Diversity Studies, and is also the founding director of the WITS Center for Diversity Studies. We'd love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. 
Prof Stan, we're coming into the latter part of of the show, and it's more of a personal reflection. You hold a PhD in psychology from University of Cape Town, an MA intercultural communication from Arizona State University, America, a BA honors in English from University of Stellenbosch, and a BA from University of South Africa. Each degree, different institution. What yes. can you tell us about the role that education has played in, in your development? Well, perhaps I should first say that, you know, I lived a life that many women would understand in that um, I had a daughter who was severely disabled. And so a lot of my decisions were shaped through what was possible, which partly explains the different universities and even the different fields. Having said that, it was also that I was always looking for the stuff that would help me work towards this fairer society. That was my, always my driving force. So it was also a case of trying to find programs that I could do as my circumstances allowed that would help me further that. So it's where I was growing already that I was looking for for the education to sort of sharpen my understandings, give me the vocabulary, help me, help me to also think better around the issues. So I think, yeah, I think that the the education just so, so important in, in helping me to be able to to get to the point where I could also refine for myself what it was that I was doing, you're really important in that. But I think also just being an educator, the conversations with students as we've talked about these issues, all of that has just been hugely contributing. So that's also part of my education. And tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up. Right. So, you know, as you know, um, I'm, I'm of an age where um, I was born during the apartheid era as, as a white child in South Africa. So I came from a home that was quite politically conscious, but very much still part of white South Africa. And uh, pivotal moments have been in coming to understand the lies that underpinned that positioning and really um, the the um, degree that I did in the States was just at the beginning when critical white studies was beginning as a field, right at the beginning. And I was just lucky that that um, one of the professors, Tom Nakayama, was working in that freely fledgling field. And that was very dramatic for me in terms of what, it, what I had to go through in order to actually face up to the fact that, you know, everything that I had trusted before had actually, as, as, a, as a base for my own identity, had really been lies. And that complete sort of like having to rethink who I was and what white people were doing in Africa, you know, why were we here, you know, and, and um, the ways in which my sense of self had been constructed on all this ignorance. Basically, what we knew about black people was just a whole bunch of stereotypes and, and fear-mongering. And to have to work through all that, understand where that came from, that, that was massive. That was massive. I mean, I can remember sort of lying on my bed in, at, in Arizona and hardly being able to move. It was a big deal to work through all of that, but so important. 
And I've been so grateful that life put me in the position where I was able to do that kind of emotional, psychological, social work on myself, to be able to really um, come to understand what whiteness was. And, of course, my, my own personal work, besides the critical diversity stuff, has been on critical whiteness. And, and looking at whiteness in South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa. So that's, that's really, I think, I think that has to be the watershed period of my life. You've really given me, I don't know, uh, I wouldn't say food for thought is, is the word, but it's, it's the, the view of how our identities are socially constructed, yes. how we are fed or absorbed information and thinking about the fundamentalist aspect of the conversation earlier on. Yes. And yes. then to realize that um, our foundation has, has been a lie, that there is yes. nothing truly to substantiate it, that that is yes. a, it's a desperate, traumatic moment. <laughs> it, 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 it was. <laughs> it was. And of course, you know, it's it's still it's still unfolding, of course, as this kind of learning always is. Um, but but as I, I said to you, you know, I'm very 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 grateful that life pushed me into that position where I had to do it, and everything that I've done subsequently has felt so meaningful and so rewarding, and and felt important because I think as a white South African, I also have a responsibility to speak out and to um, speak into those dynamics where they, where they still continue and um, hopefully to also be able to, to change some people's ways of thinking or open up some people's ways of thinking. I think that's a very important mm. role that as a white South African that I have to play. It's an important skill to have and important to be able to help people get those those breakthroughs that, that yes, they need. Yes. The thing also is that, you know, they don't always happen immediately. I mean, if I look back on my own learning, very often someone will say something and it's only later that the full import of that really lands for one. And, you know, so, so it's, you know, you're not God. You're not, you're not sort of like trying to control everybody's minds or whatever. You're just, you're just laying putting out sort of the thoughts and ideas and, and trusting, you know, that these will land in the right ways for, for the people who are receptive and who, who want it, you know. And like you said, it may not land today, but it could land it, it in might. the future. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, but I have to say that it is very gratifying when I see how, how things have shifted generationally. <clears throat> You know, I mean, when we started working on in critical whiteness studies, none of us really knew what we meant by whiteness. We were still trying to work it out, you know. And now, I mean, I listen to these young students coming up in the universities and words like whiteness just trip off their tongues, you know. They, so, so that's very gratifying to see how the discourses have shifted and the level of consciousness that has been developing, particularly in South Africa. Prof Stain, I wish that we had more time, but we've run out of time. So if I can please ask you for parting words, uh, some motivation, inspiration for young women who are, oh, let's say 
girls and women on the continent who are listening to us? Well, I suppose in in line with the conversation that we've had, um, I would say try, try not to accept the narratives of your social socialization at face value, because the narratives that position you in certain ways and keep you boxed in have always been constructed by some people for the particular interests and and um, and and it's important to allow yourself to think through whose interests they are serving and not not to allow yourself to just simply be um, conditioned in ways that actually are, are counter to your, your own best interests and i think i think young women in africa are realizing this more and more um, that we do have to unravel the ways in which our socialization makes us prone to accept a lesser life opportunities. And it is important for us to unravel those narratives and that socialization and to, to step beyond them. Thank you so much. Powerful message, encouraging people to think critically about um, their narratives of socialization and think for themselves on what's actually right. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining us. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Melissa Stain, who holds the Department of Science and Technology's National Research Foundation Chair in Critical Diversity Studies and is the founding director of the Witt Center for Diversity Studies.